you are able, please stand for the reading of the word. This morning, I'll be reading from Luke 9. Jesus said to his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things. The elders will not accept him. The chief priests and the teachers of the law will not accept him either. He must be killed and on the third day rise from the dead. Then he said to all of them, Whoever wants to follow me must say no to themselves. They must pick up their cross every day and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it if someone gains the whole world but loses or gives up their very self? Suppose someone is ashamed of me and my words. The Son of Man will come in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Then he will be ashamed of that person. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, friends. My name is Shane Hughes. I am one of the ministers here. And uh, today has been a testament of the power of your generosity, and I'm grateful for that demonstration. I unfortunately had spent too long at uh, Redbud Park watching soccer yesterday, and my allergies have gone into full bloom, so you're just going to have to bear with me. But I was, I was delighted last Sunday to be a part of Fall Fest. And if you don't know, this was your first Fall Fest. Usually we have that at Moody Ranch. It's an outdoor event. It's beautiful weather. It's wonderful a time together. But this year, it would have just been a mud pit. Um, and so our team very quickly and nimbly rescheduled the entire event so we could house it here in our building. And if you missed it, let me tell you what I saw. I saw intergenerational connectedness. I saw grandparents and grandkids, or at least those age ranges, playing together in games and dressing in costumes together and laughing and playing and eating. I saw people growing together as we are being knit into one body over the joy of candy and spooky things. I want to thank you. Last, last Sunday, I challenged that everyone that shows up was going to be a greeter. And I want to thank you for being a greeter at that event. Even if you were there just to fill your sack full of candy, uh, everyone was there to welcome our visitors. And we had 650 people, which is less than at the ranch, but we were expecting that. But on the other hand, those people came to our building. And so if you came to Fall Fest and you're here for the first time now checking out Highland, let me be the first to say to you, welcome. And I really hope I wasn't the first to say to you, welcome. I hope that you're going to find that this is a community that's serious about following Jesus and serious about loving on each other. It was no small feat to transition this carefully planned event from the Moody Ranch to here at the building. So I want to thank all of our volunteers for their flexibility, but I particularly want to thank Ashley Crisp and Ashley Sturman and Reed Hilland for their hard work. Let's thank them, please. Man, I, I, I work with the best team that you could possibly ask for, and I, that is not lost on me. Uh, we're in a series called Deliver Us, and, and we've been uh, working through a book by John Mark Comer called Live No Lies. And this is going to kind of be the, the, the final sermon of that series, although we are going to have an epilogue or two after this. 
But I want us to kind of realize where we've been this week. I want us to recall by saying something that I said at the very beginning of this series, that we often know something is wrong, but we don't know what it is. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling. It's a feeling of kind of a deep level of anxiety that there is something broken in the world. This angst that you kind of live in, that, that there is a problem going on in the universe, but it's, it's hard to name and it's hard to say exactly what it is. And we've learned that there's this kind of spiritual formation of the unholy trinity. It's the lies of the devil and the disordered desires of the flesh and the collusion and influence of the world. And it exposed the strategy of the evil one. That the battle we fight, the battleground that we fight is primarily in our minds. And the question is whether or not you believe the lies of the evil one, the devil. And if you, as you begin to absorb those lives, they kind of become filtered into your body and it, and it disorders the desires that you long for, which is your flesh. And the disordered desires become normalized in a sinful society. We call that the world. Now I realize over the course of the last few weeks as we've been looking at this idea together, you may have had the, <coughs> the reaction of, of all of these kind of spiritual talk, all of these unseen things, like, aren't we just a little too old for this? I mean, come on, preacher. Is it really the way you think? I mean, after Halloween is the perfect holiday for this series, isn't it? Halloween is that, that festival, that, that celebration where we, we dress in scary things and we, we kind of acknowledge for the fact that beyond the edge of the things that we see and the light that we can cast, there are a forest and that forest might be full of dark and evil or spooky existence. And Richard Beck, one of our elders, has done a lot of work explaining why modern Americans have a harder time believing in unseen spiritual forces, whether they're good or bad, compared to the rest of the world, as well as previous generations. Beck points out that there is a skepticism in unseen spiritual forces, and the West is actually a real thing. Christians in South America and Africa don't doubt the existence of the devil and malevolent spiritual forces, what white people in the U.S. and Europe do. And part of that is because we believe in a myth of progress, which in some places is true, but doesn't serve us all the time. We believe in some ways that we've gotten smarter and more scientific. We know more and more, and so we don't really need to rely on those childish superstitions anymore. Long story short, the myth of progress and the existence of spiritual forces are not mutually exclusive. And you can read more about this in Beck's books. They're fantastic, Reviving Old Scratch and um, Hunting Magic Eels. And we've talked about that as a body. We've looked at what the, what the idea of it looks like for our world to become re-enchanted as we see the spiritual uh, forces around us, as we become more aware of the powers that are good and evil that dwell among us. But the real fight is to recognize the real enemy. 
The problem arises is what we, when we lose this idea of an enchanted faith. And instead of recognizing the enemies as being the devil and the flesh and the world, the powers and the principalities among us, the enemies become our neighbors or the foreigner or the stranger or the person that doesn't fit into our culture very well. All people, by the way, that God, tell us, God tells us we ought to love. But instead, it just becomes the closest person we can blame. Even people believing in unseen spiritual forces at work can fall in the trap of opposing or hating one of God's children versus the evil that is at work in them. And it's not hard on social media to see that work being made manifest. People whose lives have been so caught up in confusing who their true battle is against that they attack other Christians, vilify them, try to ruin them because they disagree. I mean, Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. So don't fight your neighbor. Don't fight your brother or your sister. Fight the spiritual enemies, the enemies of the soul, and fight them with spiritual weapons. And for each of these enemies, we need a spiritual antidote. We've identified antidotes, a Christian practice that has worked for the followers of Jesus for centuries. And so we talked about this. Against, in the battleground of your mind, where we believe the lies of the devil, we, use, we combat those lies with Scripture and with prayer. Not the kind of prayer that you offer your kind of, you know, grocery list of things that you want from God, but rather the kind of prayer where you sit and you listen and you're aware of the presence of God. And Jesus does this. Jesus prioritizes removing himself from people and distractions and spending time with his Father in prayer. And we should do the same thing if we're going to be disciples. And Jesus battled with the devil when he was tempted in the wilderness. And he used the words of Scripture to counter the lies of the devil. And following the example of Jesus versus the devil, the 4th century monk Evagrius of Pontus gave us the practical practice of keeping a journal of your negative thoughts and then finding Scriptures to counter them. And I found as, as I was working through this text that one of the things that I encounter is this sense of lack that I don't have enough time, and I don't have enough resources, and I don't have enough energy, and I don't have the mental capacity to do the things that I think that I ought to be doing. And I was led to Psalm 31. The Lord is my shepherd. He gives me everything I need. I lack nothing. The lies of lack will tell me that I will never have enough. The lies of lack will tell me I'll never do enough. But the counter to that scripture is that God has already given me everything I need. And I have to confess, as a church leader, I, I, I struggle with the lie that the evil one tells me that people are going to keep leaving the church unless I do something to retain them. 
Unless I hit home run after home run after home run after sermon, if, uh, uh, sermons, as, as long as I can find a way to please them and somehow navigate all of the treacherous rocks that we're living through right now, if I can find a way through it, then everyone will stay. And that is a deep anxiety that many ministers hold right now. But I can turn myself to Scripture in Luke 10. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, indeed, only one. It's not my job. It's not, it doesn't rest on my shoulders, the success or failure of this church. That belongs to God. It's his. It always has been. But what we are called to be is serious disciples. And, and being disciples means we take Jesus seriously when he says things like what we heard this morning in Luke chapter 9. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. And then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit their very self or soul? There's this paradox contained in this truth that Jesus tells us that the very thing that you want to keep the most is what you're going to lose unless you just give it away. Unless you just hand it over to God, you cannot hold onto the things that you want just by white-knuckling it through your life. And Jesus is very clear and upfront about his followers. I am going to lay down my life, and you are going to lay down yours. And that's where this thing is headed. Do you still want to follow me? Will you trust me? Because it's a big ask. And I need to tell you the truth that I think one of the biggest disservices that the North American church has offered to the people that live, and that are trying to be disciples in our region, is that we are trying to offer cheap grace to people. Jesus did not die so that you don't have to. Jesus died to show you how. If you want to be his follower, Jesus seems to say there's no other way. Just It's a cross, and you have to pick it up, and you have to carry it, and you have to carry it every day. The question that Jesus asks is, will you trust me? John Mark Comer says it this way. To say yes to Jesus is to say no to living by my own definition of good and evil. It's to spend my time and my money however I want. To the hyper-individualism and anti-authoritarianism and full-tilt hedonistic pursuit of our day. And that's hard to do because whether we've done so intentionally or not, we've spent a lot of years of our lives prioritizing and chasing the things that Christ says we should give up. The enemies of the soul say that want us, want us to believe that we are owed something, but the gospel says we owe Christ everything. 
And there's like no greater example of how this is true in a body of believers than what we've done today on this platform. Bags and bags of food that we are not going to eat. And I realize for most of us, what we've given is, is out of our excess. That most of us don't, aren't going to go hungry any time in the next few months because we've given food up here on the, on the counter. But I know that there's a few of us in our church where that is the case. That them choosing to give food here means that they might eat less for they and their families this week. But I also know that the food that is standing on this table will be a benefit to our city. The next three months are the hardest months in Abilene for food insecurity for young families. And when you couple that with the way that uh, the pantry, Highland Pantry, provides dignity to people as they come in to get those foods, that treats them like they are as the image of God, it changes the way that the world sees itself. And Jesus asks, will you trust me? The enemies of the soul want to promise the whole world. By the way, that's something they can't deliver because that belongs to God. But the enemies of the soul want us to promise us the whole world. And Jesus promises whoever loses their life will save it. There is a paradox, but it's absolutely true, in the benefit of generosity versus receiving. And I don't normally tell stories where, like, I turn out to be the hero. I hate telling those stories, but it happened, and I want to share it with you. Hero is a... That's marginal. But I was going on South 11th the other day, and there was a, there was a truck, and it had its uh, hazards on. And it was stopped in the middle of the road. You know, South 11th, it's only two lanes. It was blocking traffic, and... It wouldn't move, so I, I did what I thought I could. I turned on, stopped my car, I turned on my hazards, and I got behind that truck, I said, let up on the brake, and we just pushed that truck up into an alley. And then I talked to the guy, and the guy uh, was first-generation American. He was, he was from South Africa. Uh, he works at that liquidator that's down by South 27th and Barrow. It's, it's over by where I live. And I said, do you know what's wrong with your car? He's like, yeah, I think it's the battery. And I said, well, I, I don't know anything about anything, but can I help you? And he said, do you know how to change the battery? And I said, no, but I can take you somewhere. And so we spent the next hour driving around trying to find the battery that he needed for his truck. And we stopped one time because he wanted to stop at a gas station, and he came out and he was holding two Cokes, not one, because he thought I might be thirsty. And we spent the next hour just talking to each other as we bought the battery and as we took the battery back to his truck and he, he figured out how to put it in while I just stood there and watched him. <laughs> and I don't know who got the better end of the deal. And I know that a lot of us don't have the ability in our time because of our work structure just to, to spend an hour helping some random person on the side of the road. I know that may not be the safest thing for you to do in your circumstance right now, but I got to tell you the truth. There is something in that moment where I was generous with my time and my talent and my treasure, and it benefited me way more than it should have. Jesus says in Matthew 6, therefore don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day will have enough trouble of its own. 
when I'm worried that I don't have enough, when I'm worried about the lies of lack as they creep into my life, I don't worry. To combat the flesh, we use the spiritual disciplines of fasting and confession. And the best example of this is the season of Lent. It's, we're coming up on Advent, but Lent is right around the corner. It's a season of repentance and discipline and fasting. And people famously give up something during the season of Lent, whether it's you know, chocolate or alcohol or red meat or social media. And it's, it's part of taming the flesh and training ourselves not just to listen to our strongest urges, but it's an exercise in prioritizing. And most of us uh, don't know what it feels like to really resist temptation because we've never really tried. And I heard from a lot of my friends, and I hope you heard this too, that their kids would come up to them when they were kind of mindlessly looking at their phone, and they would say to them, almost in a whisper, the way that my son will says it to me now, every time he does it, he always catches me, you're looking at your phone because you're afraid you're going to die. And I really wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> But most of us don't know what it's like to live in that little bit of anxiety, that twitch that makes us want to pull out our phone and see what's happening next for five minutes because we've never tried. And we don't know what it feels like to resist that for 15 minutes because we've never tried. But in the Christian calendar, there's built in these times where we're especially urged to kind of learn what that looks like. Last year, my friend Jacob, he deleted Twitter and Instagram and Safari from his apps. I would have to delete YouTube and a couple of others because he noticed he was just mindlessly checking those apps multiple times a day. And they were the biggest time sucks of his device. He found himself scrolling through old photos of people that he barely knew in grad school and he asked himself the question, why do I keep doing this? And he realized it was because it was something that kept him sedated in, in a sense. And he found doing 40 days of freedom from that bad habit was an exercise in learning to discipline his mind and his time. And so I urge you to engage in, in fasting and confession as, as part of the exercise of what we did together to, to understand how to resist and to reorder our desires. And I, I got to tell you the truth, fasting has become more and more a part of my life that I never expected. It was kind of this unnatural benefit that I fasted for a day and I felt better at the end of that day. I thought I would felt hungry, but I didn't. I felt better. And now it's, if I can do it at any time in the week, if I don't have a lunch scheduled, I try to fast dinner to dinner just to, just to experience what that feels like. And to know that my hunger doesn't get to drive the bus all the time. I'm not beholden to my desires, but I'm learning how my desires are beholden to me. And so we're learning to confront the lies of the evil one through Scripture. And we're learning to adjust our, to reorder our disordered desires through fasting and confession, conversation with each other. The antidote to the world is the church. It's being connected in Christian community. It's being actively connected to the church. It's this community of Christians. And it helps us to resist the, the normalization of sin in our society. That we are called to be the attractive alternative. 
And I got to tell you the truth, if we don't look very attractive, then we're not doing it right. We're not being good disciples. In fact, I imagine that there's a lot of Christians that are being lousy disciples because it seems like their worlds are just filled with anger and frustration and rage. They do not look very much like our Father. They do not look very much like our Lord. But all of this requires discipline and consistency. You can't start out a workout routine if you want to get in shape and just do it the first day and then say, well, it's done and I've quit. You have to learn how to run past the place where your side starts to hurt and you keep going anyway. It's got to be more than just a one-time commitment. It's about sticking to it. It's about forming new habits. It's about abstaining from evil and replacing it with good. There's this Christian uh, stand-up comic named Michael Jr. And he said when he first got into comedy, he did what every other stand-up comic did. He tried to get laughs. And that's, that's sort of the whole goal, to get on stage and find a way to make people laugh. If you can't do that, then you, you don't last long in stand-up. But, but he, at some point, he kind of changed his approach, and it changed everything for him. He realized that his job shouldn't be to get laughs, but to give laughs. And you, you might say to yourself, isn't that the same thing? Not really. One approach was very self-focused. This is for me. You guys are here to help me achieve a goal and validate me in my existence on this platform. But when he started treating comedy like a gift that he had to offer to a room full of people, it released him from the pressure to succeed, from the anxiety of whether or not he was good enough. And his attitude became, I'm here for you. I'm here to give you something and let me serve you. And it changed everything for him. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. If you want to be his disciple, if you want to follow God, you don't have to. There's a million other things you can do with your life right now that will probably lead you down to a place of disordered desires. But if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you have to realize that just as Jesus served you, you serve others. Just as God loved you, you must love others. Just as the purpose of his life was to defeat sin and evil and death by laying it down, the purpose of your life is to give it up. And when the expectation of our lives changes from getting to giving, then I think we might have a chance. And I think there's a million different ways we see that. It's in a box of cereal, somebody's favorite cereal that they're giving away because they want someone else's child to have a full tummy as they go to school. It's the kindness that's shown in the cafella, day in and day out. It's the kindness that's shown at our pantry. It's the friendliness that we have when we invite people into our building just to have fun and to give away candy. It's the hard conversations you have with those you love because you see that their life is headed to a place that will only cause them harm. But what I do know is this. 
when we start to live into the paradox that the quicker we give down our life, the quicker it's returned to us, the more powerful our witness. And the more purpose we find every day when we wake up. And so if I can help you in any way, my door is open. Just like with working out or giving up something or like through Lent or any other discipline, it, it helps you if you write down your goals. Write down what you want to change about your life and then share those goals with other people. Tell somebody else that you trust what you want to do and then pursue those goals with another person who has the same goal. And really that's who we are. We're people that are gathered together in this place because we share the same goal, that we want to look a little more like Jesus this week than we looked the week before. Because there is nothing that should hold this church together. We're not a young church. We're a church of five generations. And we hold ourselves together because we're pursuing Jesus together. And we're not a rich church and we're not a poor church. We're a church of all sorts of socioeconomic value. But we hold ourselves together because we're pursuing the same thing. We want to look more like Jesus Christ. And if that is at all compelling to you, then I need you to know that Highland is the right place. The right place for you to pursue those goals with us. And maybe, just maybe, as we take that more seriously, we can change our church and we can affect our city. And maybe even with partner with God to change the world. And I think that's something worth laying my life down. I think that's something worth laying your life down to. Would you please stand for our benediction? Brothers and sisters, it's a long road for us. Discipleship is never a short and easy journey. It is always difficult. Learning to die is always a struggle. So this week, may you be filled with peace and joy. May you experience the goodness of God's spirit all around you in every way. May you be filled with courage and go in peace.